Hello and welcome to Meetupance is Free, a podcast from Board Deck and Dice. My name's Nick and I will be your host, hopefully getting along some guests if this goes well. If not, it would just be me talking to nobody. Uh, so the idea behind this is that I would give some uh, quickfire opinions on some games and also perhaps some opinions, Meetupance, on things that have been going on in the board game industry. Now, these thoughts will probably be a little bit later than the trend of the talk, as it were, the trend of the theme. So, for example, today I'm going to be talking about paid reviews as one of my tuppences, because the tuppence is two. Uh, the other one's a bit more, um, from observations, a bit more up to date, if you follow uh, the Twitter feeds that I follow. You may not do, so you may not even be aware so, that's what we're going to do. Hopefully it'll go well. But before I get into that, I want to talk about um, something that I think is important for people to know before we go into this. And that is, this is all opinion. What I'm going to share is my opinion. And one of the things I'm really interested in is that where my weaknesses are, where my arguments fall down. So although I have opinions and I'll present them passionately... I want us as a, as a species to learn to debate better, to learn to talk to each other as though we're fellow human beings, not enemies on an opposing end of a spectrum. I can get passionate, but often my passion is not about the argument itself, but the way we treat each other. Uh, my biases in these particular uh, topics I'll be talking about today are going to be I tend to side with the small guy so in the topic of paid for reviews I would tend to side with the reviewers I am a reviewer um, rather than the publishers and that's something I do want to address the fact that the conversation is largely put on the shoulders of the reviewers I think that's unfair and that's something that's outside of the topic of paid reviews totally uh, I also get quite caught up in the bigger problems and you'll see what I mean by that when we talk a little bit about ethics also, as I forgot to say, the uh, reason this is late is I do like to think about a topic. I'm trying to think about things more before I say them. Often if I enter into a debate at the time it's going on, it's just to point out some um, f something I've seen in the argument that isn't fair or doesn't reflect truthfully. And I'll do that to both sides of the argument because... I think that benefits everyone. So we've made myself sound like a right proper good un. Uh, obviously, I have flaws as well, but you'll never see them. Uh, so before we get into Tuppence 1, let's go ahead and do some quickfire game thoughts. So I'm going to talk about two games here and then two games later on. These first two games are newer games, and the second two games will be Grail games that I managed to get my hands on. The first one is Museum from Holy Grail Games. Good coincidence. And this is a set collection game uh, where you work for a museum. You're trying to get the best um, display pieces that you can and organise them in your museum in a nice way. This is pure set collection. You're trying to collect sets that are matching colours or... Um, the same symbol. There aren't any in the base game at least uh, powers that these sets give you or effects that these cards trigger off. It is just purely set collection. 
One of the features that seems nice on paper is that when you put a card into your museum, you have to pay with cards from your hand. Now, these don't go into a collective discard pile, they go into an individual discard pile, like the store, think of it like the storehouse in your museum where, where exhibits you're not, store, not displaying are kept. The other teams, the other players, can go into these and take from them and put them into their museum. In paper, this sounds like a really on paper this sounds like a really good interaction, like the kind of thing where you'll have to think really carefully about putting cards into there because someone else might steal it just because you want that card. Or there's the potential to load up someone's storeroom with cards that they don't actually want because whenever you pay for a card from another person's museum, you're using cards from your hand and that goes into their storeroom like an exchange. So there are some ways to score negative points in a game, and if you can pay for a piece you need with cards that give the other player negative points, that would be a good move. In practice, however, this is a clumsy and ill-efficient Ill method of doing things. You find there is far too much going on in a relatively simple mechanically game for you to ever really spend enough time looking around everyone else's storeroom that a quickly fill with lots of cards you're looking at your own museum trying to work out the best way to fill it and it just becomes a system that could do with a lot of streamlining in fact i actually think it'd be better to have a collective storeroom in the middle where you a discard pile that everyone can look through but it's limited to a certain amount of cards and when you put say the 10th card in you push one out and that's gone forever i think that would have worked much better it's less uh for people to look at as it is you have to look around all the table trying to take in what everyone's got they might have one that suits you but it might not be quite as good as the other person's and it just adds a bit of stodge to a game that is already stodgy to the extreme. And that is my big problem with the museum, is that it is stodgy to the extreme. This is a simple set collection game. In terms of set collection, there's more going on in Sushi Go, which is a simpler game to play, a quicker game to play, and ultimately a more enjoyable game to play. When there is a game called Museum, I want this to be about the fun bits of being in a museum, not the boring bits. But ultimately, Museum left me feeling like it was too long for the actual gameplay that was occurring. I think part of this is because the game tries to be light by being overly generous to the players. You can score in a multitude of ways. You can use a card for both different sets that you collect. So... That is quite generous, but that generosity comes at a cost because to do this, you have to organise your museum in an optimal way. And so the designers have let you organise your museum at any point in the game, including just before scoring. We would have much preferred a system where, more like a roll and write, where you're committing a museum piece to a spot and it stays there for the rest of the game. Or if you move it, there is a significant cost to moving that because you planned that badly earlier. The way it is, it's like playing Ganshon Clever, rolling all the dice and then writing everything down at the very last round of the game so you can get the best layout you can. Sounds great, but in practice it takes too long and it just ends up not working very well. Museum was a bit of a disappointment for me. 
a full video review will be coming soon on my YouTube channel. The next game I want to talk about is the Polar Opposite. It is Draftosaurus, a game that knows what it is, that is simple, that is fun, and that plays in 15 minutes from Ankara, Ankamara, Ankamara games. Draftosaurus sees you handing around drafting wooden meeple dinosaurs, and each time you draft one, you will place it into your zoo. You all have the same zoos, except one person will roll a dice. They have free placement in the zoo, and everyone else must obey the dice requirements. The dice will give you uh, rules like you must place it in a foresty enclosure, which there are three of. You must place it in a deserty enclosure, which there are three of. You must place it where there isn't a T-Rex, and so on and so forth. It's quick, it is crunchy enough... And I really like the physical drafting of things that aren't cards. Draftosaurus is not going to win any awards for its uh, innovative gameplay, but it is a fun, fast game that you can pull out in pretty much any crowd. So, there's my first quickfire game thoughts. Now we're going to go on to my first tuppence. And that is paid reviews. Now, I don't want to talk too much. A lot of the argument has been had. Hopefully, these things I'll be saying will be a bit of a different take on some of the arguments. So, the first thing I want to say is I am not a fan of talking about ethics in reviews because I feel like there's much bigger ethical problems our world has. And we're probably not doing enough to address those. So, when you start talking about the ethical responsibility of a reviewer, I'd rather, and it probably is semantics to a degree, but I'd rather talk about best practice. What is best practice for a reviewer? Is accepting payment for a review best practice? Getting into the ethics and calling someone unethical for accepting payment just really makes the whole thing personal. And uh, you're kind of saying, oh, I think if you say, I think it's unethical for reviewers to, to accept money, then who are you saying is unethical? The reviewer themselves for accepting payment for their time or the publisher for paying uh, probably below market value for what is essentially, to them, marketing? Um, Let's not beat around the bush. The reviewer might have, and the fans of the reviewer might have, uh, concepts of this review being something else, and that might be valid. But to the publisher, to the person who's sending out this game or paying for this review... Make no bones about it, this will come from their marketing department because this is marketing for them. They are not sending out review copies or paying for reviews because they particularly want a good opinion. Yes, with some of the bigger channels, getting a Dice Tower seal of excellent, for example, can have a very positive impact on a game's sales. But this is all marketing for them. It comes from the same department. So I would really like to see us talk about best practice rather than ethics. Unless there's something deeper going on that is truly ethical, like, you know, that impacts other people in a meaningful way. Ultimately, reviewers in all fields receive something, whether that's payment from the magazine they work for, which some people again will claim is better practice or in their terminology more ethical. But reviewers always receive something, and I think it's um, somewhat naive to think that that receiving of some form of payment, whether it's money, a review copy, or um, expenses to go and view the game, whatever it is, it's all 
received by the reviewer to enable them to do that review. And everything that a reviewer receives creates potentially the same quandary that money would. If I receive a free game, I am constantly aware that I have now have a relationship with this publisher. They have sent me something to review. And if I do a bad job or even a job that they don't like, that might damage that relationship. As a reviewer, I have to decide what my response to that is. Does it matter to me more to have a good relationship with that publisher that I'm willing to um, change my own kind of guidelines, my own best practice? Or do I actually care more about being having integrity and reviewing the same regardless of whether I've bought a game or received a game, if indeed that is possible. If we look at Amazon, for example, uh, they have verified purchase reviews for a long time and they also ran a programme, I'm not sure if it's still running, where they would send um, prolific reviewers of their products free products to review them. Now, this was not the publisher or not the developer, not the owner, not the manufacturer sending them, but the seller. But I would argue that Amazon have an invested interest in getting as many reviews as possible on a product, particularly good ones. So if they're sending reviewers a free copy, there is not a conflict of interest there. But for Amazon, this is marketing regardless of how the reviewer looks at it. It is good for Amazon to get more reviews. It is good for them to send out free products, even though it's labelled as that such, so you can make your own decision on whether the review is trustworthy or not. Um, but let's not beat around the rush. This, from a publisher point of view, is marketing. And therefore, if you're going to discuss ethics and best practice, you have to then apply that to the publisher as well as the individual, in my opinion. Is a publisher who is sending out free games because they know it's good marketing and it costs them a lot less than actually paying for marketing, are they acting in an ethical or a way that would be considered best practice? Also, if we're going to question the effect of payment on a reviewer, surely we should look at all forms of payment. I have heard um, crowdfunding be thrust forward as an answer to this problem of reviewers not being paid. But if you are getting your payment from your viewers, if you're getting your payment through a Kickstarter campaign or a Patreon, surely you have the same questions and the same dilemmas as you would if you were receiving free product or payment from a publisher. What I mean is, if you are getting paid substantially by your audience, then there is a relationship there between you and your audience that's not there if you're not getting paid by your audience. You will have questions about how much you pander to your audience, whether you give them surveys so they can direct your content, whether what you do will affect a large amount of your audience, whether they might stop backing you and stop supporting you if you review one way or the other. It is not as just as simple as saying paid-for reviews are bad and shouldn't be done. You have to look at everything. When uh, my background is I have trained as a minister in the UK. Now, I have trained with a Baptist church in the UK, which I want to say for any American listeners, not that there <laughs> necessarily will be any listeners, but I want to say that the Baptist church is quite different in the UK. However, they operate a policy where their ministers are paid by the congregation. 
during my training, I became increasingly uncomfortable with that because I want to be part of a community. And for me to be paid by that community raises me to a platform that I am not comfortable with. Therefore, I did not want to receive payment from the community. Now, the Church of England does it differently. They pay from a central pot. So the congregation are not directly paying their minister or vicar. It's quite interesting that I've come from that background because I think that's why I've recognised that these other forms of payment perhaps don't get us off the hook about what is best practice and what isn't, or if we're being semantic, what is ethical and what isn't. I myself have not run a crowdfunding campaign. I have run a GoFundMe specifically for equipment upgrades, and I was very honest on that. I said, look, this just helps me get there quicker. I'm not looking to, um, I'm not a charity, I'm not, I'm going to get there, I will save the money, but if you want to help me, it gets there quicker. I actually didn't advertise this on my channel, but I went direct to publishers that I'd worked with in the past, and that's where my support for that came from. So, just some interesting, perhaps, thoughts, perhaps things you haven't thought about. Let me know, if you're on the Anchor app, send me a voice message, maybe I'll include it in the next one, maybe I won't. I can be a real idiot sometimes. Let's move on and do a couple more quickfire game thoughts. My second quickfire game thoughts today are for some Grail games that I managed to get hold of recently. Grail games are games that are out of print or difficult to get hold of. My first one is Hansa Teutonica, which is a dry euro that I absolutely love. The gameplay is uh, relatively simple. You are have a board which has various bits covered up, various upgrades you can get with cubes and discs. The cubes are your traders, the discs are your merchants, and you're route building to try and set up offices in various cities and towns across the map. Once you complete a route, you remove all your cubes and they go to a stockpile in the middle, uh, and you need to get them back into your own supply to use them. You can do various things when you complete a route, like if you complete certain routes, you can upgrade some of your abilities, which let you do things more efficiently. They let you um, score more points at the end of the game. They let you move more cubes if you choose to do a move action. They let you place out to better spots in the cities, and so on and so forth. It is slick, it plays well, it plays fast. And it is very mean. You can displace other people's cubes, which is funny. And when you do, you're often uh, annoy people. But this means you can set up traps where you want to be displaced because the displacement happens as near as it can to the road that you're on. So if I displace you from one road, you have to place one road away. Or if you can't, two roads away. So you can set up to be displaced to somewhere where you actually want to be if someone's fighting for one route you stick a cube in there to annoy them they displace you you get to place uh, where you actually wanted to go and you get a bonus of being able to place an extra cube or merchant too it works well it plays quickly and it's just bowled me away so much so that i've hunted down the expansion maps and i've looked forward to trying those with a couple of extra rules that they add that is hansa teutonica the other Grail game I was able to get hold of recently is Via Appia. Via Appia is a family game. It's very simple on the mechanics, but it has this kind of arcade coin system where you're putting 
different sized wooden discs into the back of this thing and then pushing them in with a kind of wooden stick and then they might push out some discs at the other end which you then get to use it is a great little system and it's already triggered in my mind different ways of using that mechanic for other games and you're using these these discs they represent rocks to build a path to race down the kind of roman road that you've created and score points it works well it can be played by families and i think it would have a uh, place on my game night too. Those were Hansa Teutonica and Via Appia. Now it's time for Tuppence 2. What I want to talk about is sort of linked to my earlier thoughts and that is reviewers influence. Now I have to be honest I was triggered on this one by being told I was being disingenuous as a uh, by saying that reviews had no influence on a whether a person buys a game or not. I actually didn't say that, so that was why I was triggered by it. But I was lessening, perhaps disagreeing with this person about the amount of influence that a reviewer has on a person. Now, obviously, this varies from reviewers. Um, but there's various aspects for this. Um, I don't want, as a reviewer, to have a overinflated idea of how influential my opinions are. Lots of people when they talk about reviews say they only watch the playthrough to see how the game goes or that they judge by learning that person's tastes. So for example when I watch Tom Vassell on the Dice Tower I know the games he likes, I know the games he doesn't like and I know where I line up compared to him. I know that if he likes this sort of game I'm probably going to like it too but if he dislikes a game that I may or may not like it. Even when I'm really excited by one review of a game where I see a review of a game that I've not seen before, I don't then go and order it straight away. I go and do my research on Board Game Geek. I go and look for other reviews just to make sure that I'm not going to waste my money. And I think generally it's safe to assume that most people do that. That people don't just read or see one review and then rush out and buy a game and even if they do whose responsibility is that is that the responsibility of the re reviewer or is that the responsibility of the person making the purchase i would argue it's the responsibility of the person making the purchase but some reviewers see it as their responsibility and feel this burden heavily for me i have been through a phase in my life where I ran a blog, not on board games, it was just a blog, and I really started chasing the hits, started chasing, I was checking, logging in, checking how many hits a page had had more than, you know, multiple times a day. And that period in my life really taught me that I don't want to do that. I don't want to chase hits. I don't want to chase people looking at my stuff uh, which perhaps is a bit of a different point of view. So when I started my YouTube channel, I started it as a catharsis. I felt if people watched it, if they liked it, that's fine. That's one thing. But this is something I enjoy doing. I enjoy um, being creative with my words. I enjoy offering something like that. I enjoy filming and all kinds of things like that. Yes, I suppose if no one was watching my videos, it might be something that I thought, well... Is it enjoyable enough that you want to keep doing it? But I don't tend to log in and check the stats for every video. 
Um, I keep an eye on the subscriber count every now and again, make sure I'm not losing too many, but that's about the extent of it. I do not want to tie too much of how I feel about myself into whether my reviews are successful, whether they help people or not. And it seems to me that it's very easy for reviewers, for people who put something out in the public domain, to give more importance to negative comments than it is to neutral or positive ones. And I suppose that's a way of life. You know, when you look at the eBay ratings for someone, you go and check out the negative ones first. But if I receive three or four positive comments and one negative comment, why is it that that negative comment tends to dominate the thoughts, tends to be the one that draws all my attention? We don't give equal time in our minds and our mulling things over to those positive thoughts. And I think that for myself, part of my ongoing lesson is to learn that I can't let that negative comment have too much influence and, or can't let it have more influence than I'm going to let the good comments have. So if I'm going to ignore the good comments and say, try and be humble and try not to let them go to my head and say, that's fine, people just sticking their thumbs up, whatever, whatever, then I have to do the same about the negative comments. And I see too many um, personalities within board games get really down and affected by negative comments. And my like heart breaks for them because I'm like, you're doing good stuff. That's one negative comment. It doesn't matter. So what? If you're getting all negative comments, fair enough. And actually, I'd like to be, be get to a place where I can look at a negative comment, deconstruct it for anything useful. Perhaps they're saying something good, even if they've said it in a really terrible way. Perhaps they're saying something good, and maybe there's something I can take from that. And I can leave the overly negative stuff at the side because I get enough comments from people who enjoy my, what I do and... I don't give that enough attention as it is. So there are my thoughts on reviewers' influence. I hope this has been of interest to people. It's probably a little longer than I would have wanted it to be. But send in your thoughts. Hit me with a message on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or via the voice message in the Anchor app. And I'll look forward to seeing you in episode two of Mid Tuppence is Free.